Our scripture reading for this morning will come from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. I'll be reading in the New American Standard Bible if you'd like to follow along in a light translation. Um, if you didn't bring a, bring a Bible with you, there should be a Bible in front of you above beneath the seat. Um, if you use that Bible, these words should be on page 160 of the New Testament. Please stand in honor of God's word. But we ask of you, brothers and sisters, to recognize those who diligently labor among you and are in leadership over you in the Lord and give you instruction that you regard them with very, high, very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek what is good for one another and for all people. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Good morning. You may be seated. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I'm weak. I'm weak, but I do thank you that you are strong. So, Lord, I do ask for a measure of your grace as I open forth your word and proclaim it to your people, those who you love, those who you have called by your name, those you, you have called myself and the other elders here to shepherd well. Lord, may your word go forth in clarity and boldness. Father, may your people be encouraged. And Lord, those that don't know you, that they may believe on your name. Again, Father, fill me with your spirit. Be with me as I proclaim the truth of the word of God. In your name I pray, amen. It's been a few months since I've been able to, to preach, so you can imagine that I'm, that I'm eager to impart the word of God to you this morning. We've had the privilege of going through 1 Thessalonians as, as elders, and it's just been such a great joy and so um, Keith preached last week, and that was just a wonderful message, but it's, it's been a blessing. But as we continue our study through Thessalonians, Paul, in his letter, he's just finished giving instructions on how the Thessalonians are to, are to live as they await the day of the Lord. But as he winds down this, this letter, his first letter to the young church in Thessalonica, he has a few more instructions, and this time... He turns his attention in verses 12 through 15 to relationships within the body of Christ. In verses 12 and 13, Paul tells us how the leaders and congregation are to live in peace together. And in verses 14 and 15, on how the congregation is to live at peace with the congregation as a whole as well. And well, he briefly touches on how to live in peace with those outside the church as well. H.B. Charles, looking at these verses, has referred, it, has referred them to as a crash course in church membership. How are we to function together as members of one another? So if you're taking notes, listen closely. It's somewhat 
um, a lot here, but as we go through the text, we're going to look at how elders or pastors, whose words are interchangeable, are to live peaceably in relation to the congregation, and then the congregation in relation to the elders, and lastly, the relationship between the congregation among the congregation and briefly those outside of the church. So that is the elders in relation to the congregation, the congregation to relation to one another in relation to one another's to one another and then outside of the church as well. And it's my hope this morning that we will be filled with a deeper love for one another and know more fully what it means to live in peace together. But as we get into the text, let's examine Paul's expectations, three to be exact, to the elders in relation to you. So remember, he's speaking directly to the church of Thessalonica, but this comes to us as well. So first, he says, let's look at the elders are over the congregation of the Lord. Looking at the text, excuse me. Elders are over the congregation of the Lord. Elders labor among you. And thirdly, elders are to admonish you. So we're going to look at those three first. So elders lead, labor, and admonish. But before we get into these three characteristics of elders, I do first want to take us to 1 Timothy 3 so that we can look at the qualifications of an elder. So if you will, just turn a little bit ahead to 1 Timothy We're going to look beginning in verse in verse one. And it reads, if anyone desires to the office of an overseer, again, that could be elder, pastor, bishop. These are all interchangeable. But it says he desires a noble task. It is a good thing for a man to want to be an elder, to want to lead God's church. It is a noble task. Task, But I want to focus in on the word for a moment, desire. If one, is, if one is going to be a pastor, an elder in the church, in the Greek, a presbyter, he must have a desire to do so. There must be a burning passion within him. There must be a flame or seem like a flame that has been set ablaze in his heart. He can't do anything else. This is all that the Lord has called him to do. He cries deep, with the, deep from within. Woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel. He is compelled to lead and shepherd the flock of God. Second, elders, we look at this text, are to be men. Notice how many times we see the word he in the text. Verse 1. He desires a noble task. Verse 4, he must manage his own household well. Verse 5, how will he care for God's church? And we see that same pattern all the way through verse 7. If if that were not enough, in verse 2, it says that that an elder must be the husband of one wife. 
Now, I know our culture likes to say differently, but only a man can be the husband of one wife. Third, he must be of strong character or simply he must be godly. For Tom's sake, I'm not going to go into each of these qualities, but if the man of God does not meet these, he is to be disqualified from the ministry. These things must be true of an elder. And finally, he must be able to teach. This is the only skill that is required of an elder. All of the others have to do with his character. But this one is vital. We find this quality in verse 2. The man of God must be able to rightly divide the word of truth and be able to teach it and then apply it to the lives of those that he shepherds. To go along with this, in Titus 1, we see that not only is he to teach sound doctrine, but be able to refute those who contradict it or rebuke those who contradict it. He is to be able to recognize false doctrine as well as false teachers and then protect the sheep by confronting the teacher, I mean the teaching as well as the teacher. We have this idea that we should just confront the false teaching itself, but no, it's okay to name names. In fact, I would think that we should name names just as Paul did and the rest of the apostles along with Jesus. But now that we have established the qualifications of an elder, that was a quick cursory. It might be helpful if you go back and read through Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 again. But as we have looked at those, let us turn our attention back to 1 Thessalonians and examine these three characteristics of an elder in relation to the congregation. And of course, I want us to think about us here in our context between us and relate as elders in relation to you. But as we look at it, we're going to go a bit out of order in the way that the text presents it. But I first want us to look at that elders are those who preside over you and the Lord. What does this mean that, that elders or, or leaders are over you? Well, the Greek word is proiste, and it means to stand before we are literally in front of you by by way of the of the Lord's calling and your affirmation. We have been set before you to lead and to shepherd. Acts twenty twenty eight says, speaking to the Ephesians, the Ephesian elders. Paul, that is, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. So we see right here in Acts 20, we as elders are put over you. Why? To care for you. We're to shepherd you as those who watch over your souls. Hebrews 13, 17. The first half, it says to obey your leaders and to submit to them. Now, why? It says, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. We will have to give an account as elders in the church for how we have shepherded you. We will have to stand before the Lord on that great day and answer for, the, for how we have led. 
And it is a joy. It's a great privilege to be able to serve as an elder in this church. And I thank God for the other elders that we that we have here. But it is also a frightening thing. It is a frightening thing to be in charge of the master's children. So, church, I ask that you would pray for his elders, that we will rule well. Fathers, you know how much you love your own children. How much more does the Father in heaven love those who he sent his son to die for? So, again, pray for us that we will rule well. First Peter 5, 5, 3, as we wind down this section, it teaches that this shepherding and oversight is to be done willingly and eagerly, not domineering. That's important. Not domineering or lording it over you who are under our charge, but as examples to you. Church, the only authority that we have as elders is what thus saith the Lord. And when we go beyond that, our authority is gone. We only have the authority what the script and what the scriptures tell us and what God has given us. That's the only place our authority lies. But again, we do not lord anything over you. Rather, what we are to labor among you. The NESB captures this language better as it says diligently labor among you. This is the same word that we saw back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 3 where Paul praised the Thessalonians for their labor of love towards each other. This word it means to toil. It means to literally work oneself into exhaustion. Elders are supposed to be tired. Elders are supposed to be tired. I have to preach that to myself sometimes. As elders, we are to exhaust ourselves in prayer for you. We are to exhaust ourselves in the studying of the word so that we may proclaim to you the whole counsel of God, which in Acts 6 we see is the primary labor of an elder. But also... We exhaust ourselves in serving you in a myriad of ways, whether that's visiting or, or counseling. Basically, we are to give ourselves to the ministry of the word on your behalf. Really, we could say we are to give our lives away first to the Lord and then to you. Those are, those are heavy words. It's a heavy calling. Now, I do want to be careful here because this does not mean... That elders are to, are to give themselves away to a point where they sacrifice their family on what some call the altar of ministry. A pastor's family is his first priority. It's his first priority, and we should want it that way. First Timothy 3 tells us that if one cannot rule his household well, how can he rule the household of God? So we have to have balance in this, and I think Paul Washer teaches this well as he, as he will talk about the will of God is perfect. And if God has called elders to both lead the church and to serve their families and lead them well, first and foremost, then he will equip us to do so. He would not give us a task to do if it could not be done. 
But this is why also that the scriptures teach, and I thank God that we understand that here, that there should be a plurality of elders. Laboring in the church is, is often too much for one man. And I thank God here that we have five elders who share this labor. I'm, I'm very thankful for them. Elder Ken and, and Steve, Amos, I'm not going to say anything bad about you today. And Elder Keith, these men who God has, have, has called that we are able to share this, this labor together. But not only do we share this labor amongst one another, it's, it, we are also able to share this labor among you. As part of our labor is not to do all of the ministry, but to equip you for the work of the ministry, as it says in Ephesians 4.12. And by God's grace, I think we as a congregation understand it. And I see evidence of us growing as elders and, and laboring in love. And I see that in our congregation as well. But let's excel more. I love when Paul will, will give an exhortation or give an encouragement, but then he tells us to press on. Let's excel more. Ask yourself, where in the church can I labor more? Where, where can I serve more? Where, where can I fellowship more? Where can I use my gifts more? Let's be eager to serve one another in these ways. We, do, we have many of our ministries up and running again, so there's plenty of opportunity to serve and fellowship women's ministry, which is up and running, and I've been so encouraged by how that is picking up off the ground. We have men's ministry, which we are trying to get up off the ground, and I believe the Lord will bless that as well. But there's, we have children, we have outreach, we have, we have Sunday school, which I'm going to continue to encourage us to fill that fellowship hall back again, to fill you know, the classroom where, where Nathan is teaching back there and upstairs as well. I remember it, it, used to be, it used to be full out there, and what a blessing that was. But let's, let's get back to that so we're fed well, so that we can be recipients of those who labor and teaching. But again, let us excel in laboring out of love. But with us as elders, setting the pace, we set the example for this. But as we move on, not only are we as elders to preside over you and labor among you, but also to admonish you. This might be the toughest of the three. The end, the end of the verse, verse 12 says, and admonish you. This word admonish means, I love this, it means to put truth in the mind of the hearer by way of instruction. We are to fill you with the truth. Now, this comes in the form of not only teaching, but, but mainly in warning and exhortation, as well as rebuke. We are to warn of the dangers of sin and of false teaching. We exhort you to live holy as you keep a close watch on both your life and your doctrine. And when you go astray from either or both, we, there must be a rebuke, sometimes gently, but other times harshly. Sometimes in private, and other times it must be in public. But church, if you are going astray and we do not admonish you, it is because we do not love you as much 
as we should, and we are looking out for our own interest rather than yours. Admonishment is loving. And know that if we have elders, we as elders have to admonish you in any way. It is out of love and it is for your good. But as we continue, as we look at, we're supposed to admonish you. Sorry, I got my notes mixed up there a little bit. But so those are the three ways in which we as elders are to live in you, live with you or among you. But what about you as a congregation? Well, the scripture here gives two ways in which you are to live in relation to the elders of the church. It reads, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you, are over you in the Lord, and admonish you. So first, it calls you to respect those who labor among you. The word here for respect is udia in the Greek, and it means to know. And, and not just to know who, who they are, just, just kind of know them in a, a more distant way, but to know your elders or your leaders in an intimate way. You know them because you have experienced life with them. You, you learn from us by our teaching and by our conduct. The word carries with it recognition and an appreciation for elders and the work that they or that we are doing. So you are to appreciate them or appreciate us because you have a deep, intimate knowledge of us. This means walking together side by side with one another. You can't know somebody that you don't spend time with. But you know them You know something of their toil and labor as they or we pour over the word of God as we pray earnestly, not only for you, but for the lost. As we serve the church, you are not to be distant or or cold, but you are to take notice of the elders. There's this is not true of this church, but there are so many lonely pastors They don't have friends. I think some of the most lonely people are pastors sometimes. Where they they seem to have no friends. They it just it should not be. But again, that is not this congregation. I I praise God. I can't tell you how many times in the past few months that somebody has come up to me and said, hey, we appreciate you and the other elders for how you have been leading the church during this time. It's just been many times you take notice of us. You appreciate the work that we are doing. The end of Hebrews 13, 17 says, to allow the elders to lead with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It would be a disadvantage to you for you to make this job difficult. And church, you don't. I say that with great confidence. And the other elders would agree it is a joy to serve this congregation. 
But there is one more instruction that Paul gives to the Thessalonian church and as well to us here at Green Run. And that is that it says in verse 13, and it says, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, unfortunately, verses like this, when ripped out of context, can do much harm. And godless pastors who think highly of themselves are going to have to answer to God one day. But let's look at this and, and try to figure out what it means. To esteem means to consider the elders in a special way. As elders, we are set apart for a special service to care for you, God's people, his sheep. It is a special service. It is a high calling. So you are to regard it in that way. And it says not only highly, but very highly in love. There is to be a deep, affectionate Abiding love for those who rule over you. It is a sacrificial love and an agape love. It is the same type of love that we are called to throughout the New Testament. But in this verse, it is directed towards the leadership. It is a love that looks, not out, that looks out not only for your own interest, but for the interest of others. Again, in this case, leadership it is preferring and submitting to them as unto the Lord. And, and just a quick word on that. You don't have to agree with everything in order to submit. Now, that, that might sound a little strange, but submission does not always require agreement. In fact, most times then it wouldn't be submission. Now, that does not mean that, it's, that, that you shouldn't biblically question or, or come with, with, a, with a challenge, but as long as... The elders are abiding by God's word and seeking wisdom from his word and not in sin. And you as a congregation are called to submit. Now, a quick word is not easy to I would like to not stand up here and preach how you are supposed to treat elders. But this is God's word and it must all be taught. It would be, I would rather somebody else who is not an elder preach it, but um, Again, but we have a great relationship, I believe, in this church with one another. So these things can be said in love. But continuing, it is preferring, it's submitting to, to the leadership as unto the Lord. And again, why? Why? Is it because of our rank? Is it because of our position or some type of, of false prestige? No. What does the text say? It's, it say. It says, because of their work. It is because of the work that an elder is called to do and is actively doing. Verse 13 continues, esteem them highly in love again because of their work. This is similar to 1 Timothy 5.17 where it teaches that elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. Listen to this, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So they are to receive double honor because of their labor in the Lord. Again, I'll say it one more time, because of their work. Because of their work, because of what God has called us to do and the execution of that work. It's not enough to be called to do the work. The work must be done. It must be fulfilled. We must be actively doing it. 
The respect and esteem that elders are to receive only go as far as the work of the Lord that we do. It is similar to what I said earlier. We don't have any authority apart from the scriptures, apart from what God has called us to do. As soon as we get out of step with that, please call us out. The Bereans would search the scriptures day by day to even test Paul, who was an apostle, to see if what he taught was true. But faithful elders who rule well and are faithful to the ministry of the word, who are faithful to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who preach him and him crucified alone, who teach you the commandments of the Lord so that you may grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then those who apply those teachings to our lives as our lives as examples to you. These are the men who are to be appreciated and esteemed highly. What? In love. Love is a driving force behind all of this. But Paul is not only concerned with the relationship between the leaders and the congregation, but also the congregation with the congregation. He ends verse 13, be at peace among yourselves. Now I've titled this sermon live in peace with one another. And I have tied that back to how the elders and the congregation are to live together, but Paul's more of his emphasis, and that is true, that what I just described is how we live at peace with each other, but his, his emphasis more so to be at peace is amongst yourselves. And I think we can include the elders in that as well as we live together horizontally as a congregation. But this command to live in peace is seen in a number of times in the New Testament. We see in Romans 12, 18, it says to live peaceably with all men. Hebrews 12, 14 says to strive for peace with everyone. And peace is a fruit of the spirit in Galatians. And so it should be a mark of every believer But if they were going to live in peace with one another, certain groups needed to be addressed. And I will argue that these groups are in every church. And if they're not, if you're not in in one of these groups, then you've probably been so in the past. But there are three groups here. One group needed to be more rebuked as we'll see in a moment, while the other two needed more of a gentle, I would say, coming alongside of. But this is another reminder that there is no perfect church. There is no perfect church. We've talked about the church of Thessalonica being a model church. We see the way that Paul speaks of them throughout this letter. But they're not perfect. They have issues. And that's okay. We're all sinners saved by grace. We need to be sanctified. We are being conformed to the image of Christ, and that will not be finished until glorification. But verse 14, it reads, and we urge you, brothers. We urge you, brothers. We see 
this earnest plea. It says, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and this third one is to help the weak. Saints, everyone in the church cannot be dealt with the same way. We must be discerning in how we deal with one another or those who are struggling. If a person is faint-hearted, but you admonish them because you haven't discerned it well, you might crush them. If somebody is idle and they need more of a rebuke, but you come alongside of them and you only encourage them, they might not correct their sin. So we must be discerning. But let's look at this first one. It says, admonish the idle. This word is the same as in verse 12, to admonish. So the idle are to be warned. They are to be exhorted. They are to receive correction. And just as elders are to admonish, you as a congregation are to admonish one another. And again, and again, it is done out of love. And remember, I probably should have said this earlier, but if you go to somebody to correct them, to admonish them, remember 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What have you received that was not given to you? So we have nothing to boast about. Nothing. So when we go to somebody, let's go to them in a spirit of gentleness, with a humble heart, remembering the grace of God on your life. But what does it mean to be idle in this context? Well, the word is not so much speaking of of laziness, though that should be admonished as well. But it refers to those who are disorderly, or undisciplined. The Greek word was originally a military term and referred to the character of soldiers who dropped out of their ranks or deserted their posts and therefore could not or would not perform their duty. Basically, they quit. The word literally is quitter. In the spiritual sense, these are those who are wayward or out of step. These are hard words, but they don't care about or they refuse to use their gifts to edify the body. They don't serve others. They become mere spectators. John MacArthur has referred to the idle or unruly as bench warmers. And if you know anything about a bench warmer, speaking of a sport, someone who does not get into the game, They're known many times for critiquing and complaining while not being able to contribute anything. But at least, at least in their case, they have the coach (laughs) the blame. The coach is not putting them in there. But what is our excuse if we are idle? What excuse do we have? And thinking back to this and and what a, a bench warmer looks like, they're one that at the beginning of the season, they, they may be all in. They may be rooting for the team. They, they, they may love their coach, but it's what happens as the season goes on. They start bickering. They become bitter. They complain. They critique. Sometimes I've seen or heard people becoming bitter to the point of rooting against their own, their own team. It's true. 
But that will happen to us as well. (laughs) If we, or can, it's a danger. If we're just spectators, we will critique, we will complain. Before you know it, you'll be just like the bench warmer. But what if you get up and serve? What if you're walking alongside your brothers and sisters? You're less likely to complain or critique those in a harsh way who you're living life with. So I want to encourage you, if this is you, to repent. In Thessalonica, we see in verses or in chapters, not in chapters, but in both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, the unruly were those who refused to work. And the fact that Paul addressed them multiple times, it showed that they refused correction. Or at least they just needed more time. (laughs) But disorderly members are those who can hear teaching and correction for years, but remain apathetic and in rebellion. Again, if this is you, repent and begin to serve. Get in line with what God has called you to do. And if you know anyone who is unruly, Admonish them. Correct them. If you see your brother overtaken in a fault, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. But again, we must be discerning because we may think someone is idle, but in reality, they might just be faint-hearted or timid. They're discouraged to the point of nearly giving up. That's what this means. This word is literally those whose souls are small. In Thessalonica, this was probably due to constant affliction from those outside the church. Or we see in chapter 4, those who had died amongst their congregation or within their community. And these people, they needed to be encouraged. And to encourage here means to draw near to to console, to build up constantly in the Lord so their spirit that so that their spirit is strengthening is strengthened. It's been a difficult, I would say, two years in this church with as much as gone on. But thank God He is keeping us. But some of you are faint-hearted. Some of you may be near despair. Sometimes you might feel like giving up. You might feel like that there's nowhere to turn. But if that's you, your elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, he understands you. Why? Because he became like you. In Matthew 26, 38, what did he tell his disciples? He said, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. We see that he wept tears at the death of Lazarus, even though he knew that he would raise him moments later when when his good friend and cousin John the Baptist was beheaded. He withdrew himself to a secluded area. Jesus knows loneliness. He knows sorrow. He knows disappointment. He knows pain. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. In Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, it reminds us, for we do not have a high priest. Thank God for that. 
We do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize. He knows. He is right there with you. He's walking step by step, stride for stride. He's never left. He's never forsaken you. He's there. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Those who are weak, when you're weak, he is strong. He, again, he knows. He was but one who, who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. Go before your master. Go before the Lord boldly to his throne of grace. So that why? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to, uh, to help us in the time of need. Go to your Savior. He understands you. Look to him for strength. And remember these words from Paul. Paul, the, the great sufferer, some might call him, said, the sufferings of this present time do not compare to the glory that will be revealed in us. So let's encourage, church, encourage the faint-hearted. Lift one another up. Build each other up. Encourage each other with these words. And thank God that we do have such a compassionate and loving church. I see it all the time when somebody is sick, when people are going through hard times. So many of you come together and loving one another. And let's continue in encouraging the faint-hearted. And thirdly, Paul says to help the weak, or some translations say to cling to the weak, to hold each other up, lest we slip away, or lest they slip away. Now, the weak, it refers to those who are spiritually weak, those who are weak in faith and or in knowledge. Now, this could apply to the weaker brother or sister that we Read about in Romans 14, those who may need help to not sin against their conscience. And that, in that example, Paul would, would use those who were previously idol worshipers. And if they ate meat, they might be tempted to go back into their previous lifestyle. So they would abstain from meat. And those who were stronger in faith would, would, would try to help them along and not do things to help them to fall back into that sin. But I think what Paul has in mind here more so are those who are morally weak. There are those who are struggling with sin, falling into besetting sins. They can't seem to, to overcome it. You are to help them. You are to cling to them. You are to hold them up lest they slip away. Those of you who are strong are called to do this, to come alongside the weak in an intimate way, reminding them of who they are in Christ, that they have the spirit of Christ dwelling inside of them, that they are no longer bound by the flesh, that they do not have to allow sin, that sin cannot reign in their mortal bodies, helping them in practical ways to put to death the deeds of the body and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, helping them to set their minds on the things that are above and not upon things that are on the earth. 
Church, if we are going to help the weak, we must be involved with each other. We must, the Bible says, what does it say? Confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. So let's get closer with one another. This is in small groups. This could look like discipleship relationships coming together in one another's homes. But we must help each other in our road to glorification, that we may be sanctified so that we may be more conformed to the image of Christ. If you are weak, again, remember who you are. Remember what the Lord has done. You don't have that heart of stone. You now have a heart of flesh. He has changed you from the inside out. Now go live as he has called you to live. And if it's difficult, it is, it can't, it is difficult, this, this life. Go find one who is stronger so that they may aid you in your way and conformity to Christ. And if you are a stronger brother or sister, seek out those who are weaker in faith so you may help them along. But again, although each group is to be dealt with in a specific manner, one thing must be constant. It says that we are to be patient with them all. Sometimes patience, or many times, patience is difficult. It is hard. I think of Second Timothy where Pastors are called to preach the word in season and out of season, exhort, rebuke, correct. But then it says, with all patience and teaching. We think of, of prophets of Jeremiah and Isaiah who proclaimed the word for years and nobody believed, but they kept on doing it. It might be days, it might be weeks, it might be months. And they still don't listen. They still don't believe. But you must be patient. You must walk alongside of them in love. You must remember the Lord's patience with you. Think of how patient the Lord has been with us before salvation and is with us even in salvation. And let that be your encouragement. Let that be your strength. That when you've been laboring with somebody with weeks or months and you say, well, they're just not getting it. Well, guess what? You didn't get it either. And sometimes we still don't get it. But does the Lord leave us? No, he is patient. He is long suffering. So let us be long suffering. Let us be patient with one another. Put, bear each other's burdens. Put on. Your battle attire, day by day, that we find in Ephesians 6 so that we may help each other grow in conformity to Christ. But remember the patience of the Lord when we are tempted to not be patient with with each other. And quickly, verse 15 how else are we to live in peace? It says, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Seek to do good 
to one another and to everyone. And, and again, I point back to the Lord who was reviled, but yet did he revile back? No. He was spit on. He was beaten. He was nailed to a cross. This is the Lord. This is the Lord of glory. And not one time did he defend himself. Not one time did he repay evil for evil. He is our example. Romans 12, 20. What does it call us to do? It says, if your enemy is hungry, do what? Feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing so, you will heat burning coals on his head. Now, this just means that they will experience some type of deep shame or remorse because of your kind response. They're expecting you to respond in a certain way, but because you are so filled with the spirit of Christ, you are able to respond in the, the exact opposite manner. And those in the church, we're hardly enemies. We're brothers. We're sisters. We have the same father. Christ died for all. Christ died for us. So we should definitely not be known as one, as those who repay evil for evil. But we are to have peace, not only inside the church, but quickly Paul does deal with those outside the church when he says, do good to one another and to everyone. Now, the Thessalonians, they were experiencing, they were enduring persecution. So you can only imagine that they would have been tempted to repay evil for evil. But what does Exodus 14, 14 says? It says, be still and let the Lord fight your battles. And Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Brothers and sisters, if you are wrong, let your father take care of it. Now, that's inside the church and outside the church. Now, if we're inside the church and we're wronging, one another in any way, I'll refer back to what Amos preached in 1 Thessalonians 4, 6. Now, this had to do more with sexual sin, but it, I, I think we can apply it to all sin. It says the, the, the Lord is the avenger in all these things. We will give an account for how we treat one another in the church, first and foremost. But we will also give an account for how we treat those who are outside the church. And the best way to live among those outside the church and to do good to them is to first of all live a godly life in front of them, loving them in as many ways as you can, serving them. But I would say most of all proclaiming the gospel to them, proclaiming the word of God. One person said, they're, they're, they're not sure, I think they, they say it was Francis of Isaiah, they're not sure if he actually said this or not, but he says, do, um, preach the gospel or something, Amos, can you help me? <laughs> yeah, preach the gospel daily or something like that, if necessary, use words, that, that's dumb. 
the, the gospel is, is used with words. You can live as holy as you can every day. If you don't mention Christ, I'm almost positive that someone's not going to come up to you and ask about the hope that lies within you. Now, they might. I'm not saying they won't. We should live godly lives, but we must share the gospel. We must speak of the one who has changed us and who has called us. So, unbeliever, the most good I can do to you this morning is to call you to repentance. It's to call you to the one whom you've rebelled against, the one who you are under his wrath, and he will pay to you what you deserve. There will be a day of wrath. The day of the Lord will come, as my brother Keith preached last week. So before that day, or before the Lord calls you, repent. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ so that you may be saved. Abide in him. And then you can experience the wonderful glories that we do as brothers and sisters in Christ. You can't live at peace because you have no peace. So make peace with the Lord. Repent. Believe the gospel. If you don't know the Lord, I will make myself available after the service for a few minutes if you want to talk. But lastly, as we wrap things up, I hope that we are seeing how we are to live with peace with one another. I I pray that the Lord would fill our hearts with love for one another, thinking through how we can serve one another better. So in ending, I would just say let us seek to love and live peaceably with the elders of the church, with one another, and with everyone. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, at the beginning of this sermon, I, I think I made it clear that I'm weak. Lord, I'm frail. Lord, nothing, I, I can't do anything in my own power. Lord, I know I did not just give this, this wonderful text to justice that it deserves. There's so much more here. It could have been said much better, but Lord, I ask that you use it for your glory. Father, that you would sanctify your people, that we would know what it means to live in love and in peace with one another. And Father, I do ask that those who don't know you will repent and believe the gospel. Father, be with us. Lord, we pray all these things.